The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. This is an historic occasion. Yesterday, the first serious trade war uh, in 70 or 80 years was initiated. The United States put tariffs on uh, $34 billion worth of Chinese goods. The Chinese retaliated. These are only opening guns. Uh, we don't know where it's going to go. But as President Trump reassures us, winning trade wars is easy. <laughs> the last one was the 1930s. But we'll, we'll get into that, okay? So, um, the American imperialism has interests everywhere in every country in the world, okay? I'm not going to, I'm only going to be focusing in on the struggle with China. Uh, I may mention a little bit about the Middle East, but it is the struggle with China which is definitive for this generation. If the, well, we'll get into that. That is, this is the most important uh, imperialist struggle that is just unfolding now. We are really in the early stages of it. This, um, uh, these tariffs, this trade war, and so on, are just the public recognition of what has been going on underground for a number of years now between the Chinese and the Americans over the question of who is going to dominate the world. Um, the, um, for most people in this audience, even though there have been endless warfares, for the most part, war has not affected people's lives for 30 years. That is, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and so on. Uh, people don't go to sleep thinking that, well, they may think there's a, uh, there'll be a terrorist attack, but there's not going to be a nuclear bomb dropped on the United States or anything like that, okay? We are now moving into a different sort of thing. Uh, this, um, because for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States has a competitor for being a superpower. For 30 years, it has been the only, it has been the only world superpower. Um, and uh, what is now going on is there are two. There's a rising superpower and a declining American imperialism. Decline does not mean collapse. And what this is about is the American ruling class putting us on recognition. It does not accept its decline. It is going to be attempting to organize so that it does not decline, so that it remains the main superpower in the world, okay? Um, it's planning to fight back. Trump's Make America Great Again is about that. Great. Again. Not what Hillary Clinton says, well, we've always been great. No, no, it was a decline. And what he says is, she's a loser. They're losers. They have been losing the struggle, which is what the American ruling class thinks, that Obama presided over the decline 
of American imperialism, and you needed a stronger response. Trump is both a result of that decline, a symbol of it, he has brought it to consciousness and shifted the consciousness of the American ruling class on the question of the struggle with China, and he is attempting to reverse it. Now, we may say that he's doing it chaotically, incompetently, uh, crazily. There's a logic to some of it, and some of it may blow up in his face, uh, and so on. But, even if it does, there will be other attempts. The American ruling class has not signed up for its decline. <laughs> there have been lots of imperialist projects that the American ruling class has been engaged in that turned out to be disasters, okay? They're not uh, super smart necessarily or all-powerful or anything like So they may have an imperial project that they'll then get another plan. They do not plan to walk off the stage of history. You're going to have to kick them off, okay? So um, when I say that, this is not the policy of one loony man. It is the policy of the American state, the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, and the, Ameri and the American ruling class, which is divided on aspects of it and how to do it, but the American ruling class and its political representatives are for it. That's why there's no real opposition either inside the Democrat, the Republican, or the Democratic Party, because the political representatives of capital are for this project. Not all the details of it. Some of them think it's crazy, but they are for the project and wanted to make, okay? Um, and we'll get into, this is a project that is totally intertwined with domestic politics. Totally intertwined. The ruling class does not have one policy for domestic and another for foreign policy. That is, it is a class policy that we'll get into in terms of military budgets, uh, the economy, um, including, of course, racism. That is, you know, really, and nobody really believes that there's a huge immigration pro uh, problem in the United States. There isn't. You know, there is something else, however. There is the possibility of generating patriotic, racist xenophobia to prepare people for the struggle with the foreigners, who are the Chinese. And to a lesser extent, well, we'll get into it. Okay. Now, um, I wish this guy could write. <laughs> um, okay. So, before going into it, I would like to just do a brief recapitulation of imperialist uh, dynamics um, before, to put it this stage into the context, what has come before us in order to be able to better understand it, okay? The very first thing is, or 
all of us, or many of us, know that the basic laws of motion of capitalism is competition on a market, the market shares in which you get uh, profits that you then accumulate, raise productivity, lower costs, otherwise you'll be driven out by your competitors. Okay? That's the ba- About 130 years ago, that led to the rise of modern capitalist imperialism in which the economy broke out of the boundaries of the nation states and then became a struggle for the world market, not just the domestic market. That has some implications for it because it's, uh, there's no, there's no nas- international state so that each nation state carries out its own economic policies, uh, which as Bukharin points out, an anarchy of production on a world scale that makes economies even more unstable. And secondly, nation states intervene to back up their companies. Uh, It's not the sort of nonsense that has been going on around for decades that uh, the Corporations are all free to do whatever they want, and they, you know, and they can, and they don't have any nation states backing them up. Nation states back them up, including militarily, and that led to a crisis of imperialism from 1914 to 1945. World War One, depression, a second world war, the collapse of the empires, only two victors. Um, the United States and Russia. And the victory, and they divided Europe, and the victory was really based upon two things. American industry. The United States was the arsenal for democracy. In 1940 it had no uh, war production, no army, etc. But it had the greatest industry. You know, what was the song? It's the UAW CIO that makes the army roll and roll, producing tanks and, sh- and uh, planes in the auto plants, okay? And the United States was also the source of the oil for the Allies, while it was Russian troops that were doing the heavy fighting. So these were the two victors. They divided Europe. Uh, the United States, or I'm not going to have time to go in it, organized the entire capitalist world under its auspices through uh, Bretton Woods, the World Bank, the WTO, the IMF, the UN, NATO, etc. Okay? And it started an uh, imperialist competition with Russia that had no economic dimension to it. That was a political and military competition. There was no, uh, the Russians were totally incapable of economically competing. They really had virtually nothing on the world market but some um, natural commodities, oil and so on, okay? So the Americans organized the whole world. They did so under their auspices and protecting them under their domination by paying for a huge military budget, a permanent arms economy that used to take 8 or 10% of all the production in this country. Eventually, what that led, and then to pay for some wars like in uh, Korea and Vietnam, and by the 1970s, it led to the fact that there was an enormous decline of profits inside the United States, 
and um, Germany and Japan were rivals. They were, the Americans were being forced off the world market. The Ameri it was the first decline of American imperialism. It successfully overcame that in the 1980s by neoliberalism, uh, cutting wages, raising productivity, smashing unions. Wages are less today than when they were in the 1970s. Uh, in steel, uh, in 1980, uh, the United States Mm. Mm. Uh, the United States had the highest wages and the lowest productivity in the world. In 1990, it had the lowest wages of the advanced countries and the highest productivity. Uh, in steel, they were producing as much steel with one-third of the steel workforce from 10 years before and at lower wages, okay? It's what we call neoliberalism. They restored their competitiveness on the world market. Profits, however, were not stored very uh, uh, enough. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but in 1989, 1990, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc collapsed. The United States was the only superpower in the world. Uh, and it made two strategic decisions that have come back to bite their ass. The first was the invasion of the Middle East to be able to control all of the oil supply of the world so it could control oil is the raw material both of industry and military. It could control all of its rivals throughout the world. As you know, 15 years later, after the, the war in, Viet, uh, in Iraq is called the greatest military blunder the United States has made, 15 years later they have no plan that they can possibly win. It has cost something like, what, $6 trillion for the, in the Middle East. It has bled the Americans while uh, the Chinese have risen. The Americans would love to get out, uh, pivot to Asia, but when they do, it creates a vacuum. The Iranians, the Russians, other, so they can't get out. Uh, uh, and they're now trying to pull together uh, an anti-Iran uh, block of Israel, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt, hopefully, uh, you know, that is. So <clears throat> they're still stuck there, though, okay? Their other big conception coming out of the collapse of the Soviet Union is what's called globalization. That is, the stage of the American, that it thought it could incorporate the entire world under its economic dominance, because with the collapse of the Soviet Union and with China and India, over a billion, I think it was one or two billion workers entered the world labor force with practically no capital equipment. It lowered what Marxists call the organic composition of capital on a world scale and led to an enormous rise of profits. And in particular, the profits of the American corporations who then with those profits, rather than reinvesting them in the United States, did it abroad. When I say that in 19, it starts in 1990, in the year 2000, there were fewer factories in this country than there were in 1990, despite the enormous rise in profits. What you got was cheap labor elsewhere, particularly in China, um, and supply chains, okay? And, <clears throat> okay? and new centers of capital accumulation. So 
China was going to be incorporated into the American economic system through globalization. And so it produced all sorts of cheap goods for Walmart. It became a sweatshop for Apple. Uh, for General Motors, they produce and sell more cars in China than they do in the United States. This is just... Okay. Um, so, all of a sudden, China became the workshop of the world. In this period, uh, in the year 2000, when it entered the WTO, it produced 4% of world GDP. The United States produced 31. Today, China produces 15%, and the United States produces 24. Okay? So it's an enormous shift, and it isn't stopping. But it's an enormous shift that has gone on. It became the workshop of the world, and the United States started to de-industrialize. So, what is the Chinese challenge uh, now that uh, we've been through? We're now at this stage of, um, oh, just to say, globalization may turn out to have been an even bigger disaster at the end of the day for American capitalism. It engaged in globalization for the profits of the multinationals, but it has led to a situation it could only have occurred in a period of peace with one superpower. You could not have it in a period in which there's an imperialist rivalry, as we will get into uh, why and so on. Okay, what's the Chinese um, challenge? <clears throat> Well, first I mentioned to you uh, that it, uh, it's the World Workshop, uh, its economy has risen quite dramatically. Uh, it is, there's been nothing like that since the rise of the United States at the end of the 19th century. Um, <clears throat> okay. It makes all sorts of things that the Americans need for defense. It makes the instrument panels for the American airplanes. It makes the surveillance cameras for the American army bases. It makes your cell phones that we couldn't possibly function. Without, I mean, you cannot have a country that may go to war depending upon its enemy for those things. Just not possible, okay? Um, so, there are some other things that have occurred. The Chinese ha have something like a half a billion, uh, 500, a half a trillion dollar trade surplus with the United States, okay? Maybe it's not that, maybe it's only 400, and I don't remember the exact figure now. What do they do with that money? Well, aside, first what they did was uh, building up their own economy. Now what they're doing is a couple of things. One, they are modernizing their military. They are building a navy that is a, um, to take over the South China Sea. And there have been all sorts of flashpoints in the last, but that's only for openers. They want, they're now in a position in which they can push the American Navy out of there. 
The United the South China Sea, by the way, 30% of world commerce goes through it. Okay? Uh, including a lot of China's, including its oil supply and so on. The Americans are in charge of it. Well, if you were the Chinese, would you allow the Americans to be in charge of your economy? Well, no. <laughs> so, the, it's inevitable that they were going to push the Americans out, or attempt to, if they want to be okay, and it's inevitable that the Americans are not about to give up the Indo-Pacific. Oh, the United, you know, their song, Rule Britannia, Britain rules the waves. The Americans rule the waves. They have since the end of World War II. The Fifth Fleet defends the Persian Gulf. The Sixth Fleet defends, uh, where does it? The Seventh Fleet is Europe. Uh, the Sixth Fleet, I think, is the Indo-Pacific uh, region and so on. Okay, so it is inevitable there will be conflict between the United States and China over the South Chinese Seas, over who controls the oceans. The United States is not about to, it is both an Atlantic and a Pacific power, it is not about to give up its control over the oceans. So it's inevitable there are going to be conflicts uh, between them. The second thing is um, the Chinese then announced the Belt and Road Program, that what they are going to do with the money that they make by selling to the Americans and saving is create to belt and a tri-continental, that is uh, Asia, Europe, Africa, one gigantic uh, market held together, um, held together under Chinese domination. That's, you know, that's what they'd like to do. It doesn't mean that it will necessarily occur, but that's what they're starting to do. They have uh, debt problems. Uh, they may not be getting half a billion dollars from the Americans every year, uh, if there's a, and things like that. So, we, okay. Um, they also announced, or let me put it, in 2020, they will have 30 satellites up. Okay? Until now, the United States has had a monopoly on air power. It was air power that won the Cold War for the Americans. They have had a monopoly. They're the only people who had satellites up. Now the Chinese have announced they're going to be putting up 30 satellites, okay? And they also announced that by 2025, they will be dominant technologically on artificial intelligence, robots, uh, satellites, and so on. This is a total challenge to the American control of space and cyberspace. It is not just they're going up the food chain. They're going to be, instead of just, they're going to be, you know, Robotics and so on, and artificial intelligence, as we will get into, are key, are the key to the American military strategy for this coming period. Okay? So, the Americans now, of course, want to contain the Chinese. It's too late. They can't contain the Chinese at this point. Uh, they can't say we're the only superpower. Tough. 
you know, they're going to be trying, uh, you know, there'll be a fight back and so on. Uh, so, okay, let's get to the Americans and their response to this. Okay, the first is Obama's response, uh, which was uh, pull out of the Middle East and then you couldn't, uh, pivot to Asia, uh, the TPP, you know, the economic program, that collapsed, um, you know, um, but there were various things that he did do that Trump is building on. One is oil, that is oil fracking, that is the United States. Uh, by this year or next will be the leading oil power in the world under Obama oil production doubled and it's now just sky's the limit under deregulation, pollution, yeah. you name it, okay. Uh, second, he set up a bunch of naval bases to try and contain China that is in um, Japan, Korea, Okinawa, Singapore, Australia and the Philippines, that is. And third, he introduced, and that Trump, of course, is continuing, a $1 trillion nuclear modernization program. For those of you who don't believe in nuclear arms, that we could never have a nuclear war, uh, well, there, the American government doesn't believe that. Uh, okay, you can keep on be uh, feeling reassured, but they are trying to build a greater nuclear uh, capacity. Okay, Trump, beyond Obama, has really a total program. It is a domestic and foreign policy one. It is to restore American economic power on the world market. How is he going to do that? One, cut taxes on the corporations, 35% to 21% bring back the two trillion dollars uh, abroad, deregulate everything to increase profits. And it's done. Profits are up 25% in the last year, over a year ago, okay? Um, of, of the S&P 500, not necessarily the smaller companies, but it is to bring back, to make production in this country more profitable than elsewhere, including making sure that wages do not go up, that there are attacks on Janus, uh, on wages, on social, that is to make sure this remains a cheap labor market, okay? Second, that supply chains have to be brought back to the United States, that you cannot have supply chains that make parts that are necessary for military uh, equipment and so not in secure American hands. By the way, one of the things that we do not know about this trade war that's so easy is there's never been a trade war with supply chains. We don't know what the fuck is going to go on. But, you know, they do. They want the supply chains here in secure hands. That's why it is not just against the Chinese and why it isn't just some sort of crackpot thing. Why is he going after our allies as the, you know, uh, the Europeans and the, uh, Canadians. the Canadians and the Mexicans and so on? It all seems crazy. Nope, 
It ain't. It ain't. The, the balance of payments just in car part, cars and parks, uh, parts with Germany, uh, Mexico, and um, Canada is, uh, where's my figure? It's around, two, it's around a quarter of a trillion dollars, okay? They want that back. They want them. It's not jobs for workers. This is ruling class politics. This base, Trump's base is the ruling class, not white workers. They don't give a shit about white workers. They never have, okay? This is about the ruling class, its base, what its policies are. Now, oops. Okay, they want the supply chains back here. Okay, um, and they want also to make sure that China does not catch up with them in high tech. They're preventing the Chinese from buying any high tech corporations here or trying to prevent them from doing it in Europe as well and so on because there is a struggle over, as we'll get into, uh, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, and so on. So there's the economic program that is to bring um, I don't know, to bring back as much as they can uh, that is to make the United States the arsenal of democracy again. You cannot go to war without industry. To make the United States as strong in the, not to have China as the workshop of the United States, okay? Second thing is in terms of the military. The military budget this year went up to $720 billion. That's a 20% increase. It was more than what the Pentagon asked for, but both parties in Congress voted for that, okay? More than what Trump asked for. You then to that, you have to add the $60 billion black budget for the CIA and the, you then, I can keep on going. The war, the war budget is really somewhere between 900 billion and a trillion dollars a year, around 5% of GDP, okay? And that's before we get ready. That's before we get ready. That means you have to be able to get more money for the military. Where is it going to come from? Well, the NATO allies should cough up more, and they are. The Saudis and the Middle Eastern people, they should cough up more money and take on Iran, okay? We have bad deals. We got to change that, because we can't afford it. <clears throat> we can't afford, well, why can't you afford it? Well, we can't afford it because we're preparing for war, World War III. We're building a bigger military. And that's going to cost a lot of money. More than what exists now. So, we have to prepare. Oh, it may not happen. We'll try definitely to make sure it doesn't happen and our people at the UN will do all that they possibly can. Okay, and blah, blah. But it is being prepared for by both sides. So you have to cut 
all sorts of things, and so on. Um, the United States has what it calls full-spectrum dominance, which it used to be air, land, and sea, okay? That, uh, you know, it had, I don't know, it has a, I think that, I can't remember, I think it's 1.4 million people in the armed forces at this point. Um, it has 850,000 people Maybe a couple of minutes more than okay. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I'm not done yet. Right, I, and you know it. But I, I'm not going to go that far over. Is what I was saying. Um, okay, um, I'm not going to go in. It has 69,000 elite troops, seals, rangers. Uh, you know who are training the NATO forces and the forces you know, uh, in the rest of the world. The idea that they're breaking with all their allies is just nonsense, okay? They're having problems with them because they're saying cough up and the allies don't necessarily want to, but no, 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 they're not breaking with them yet, okay? But in addition to land, air, and sea, the Americans now put money into space, cyberspace, and covert stuff. Um, American hegemony is wide and deep. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, it has 800 bases throughout the world. Not just control of the seas, 800 bases. Those bases offer offensive warfare for keeping war out of the United States. We haven't had war on the, United, on the continent since the Civil War. So there are bases all over the world. Uh, the prize ones are Ramstein in Germany uh, and the ones in Okinawa and Japan. And they're not breaking with those allies. They're trying to shake down money from them. They're not breaking with them, and the allies aren't breaking uh, with them. Okay? Um, artificial. Uh, okay. The United States has shifted to. You know, people make sort of fun about space, space cadets, or what is it, space corps, you know. Uh, right. And really, some of that is just a bureaucratic fight. Should there be a fourth division of the armed forces? Uh, you know, uh, Air Force, Navy, Army, and sp space is key to the continued dominance of American imperialism, okay? It is. Uh, they have drones, satellites. Um, they are attempting to set up a situation in which, um, in which they can incorporate drones, robotics, satellites throughout the entire world with covert and with underground cables for surveillance to be able to control everything and see and hear what's going on. It's a pretty expensive thing. Uh, I'm not going to go into it since uh, we don't have very much time left. OK. Now, um, this. Um, these early stages from Trump 
have created splits inside the ruling class. That is, uh, not where they want to, you know, the business round table, the, they all moan and groan and so, they don't break with him. You haven't seen them shifting money to the Democratic Party or anything like that. Or trying to get a dem, you know, they are for it, but there are a lot of things that uh, they are against. Uh, partially, this whole thing, no one knows what his plan is. Uh, you know, to win this trade war. A lot of it uh, is a crapshoot. Uh, they can't let, everything's chaotic. Uh, what are you doing one day? Well, we'll change it the next. And here's a bunch of incompetents who are running this, you know. I mean, crooks and thieves and incompetents, really. I mean, it's an administration uh, that, you know, gives the ruling class the creeps, even if it's doing what, you know, um, <laughs> even if it does what they want them to do, and so on. Okay. Um, it's, um, it's a crapshoot. It may be unsuccessful. It will not end, though. There'll be another plan and another administration. The Democratic Party will be happy to pick this up and run with it. It is any time he wavers on China, that's the only time Charles Schumer beats his chest. <laughs> you haven't, you know. So it's, um, and they, it will be a different cut, you know. I mean, and by the way, you're, you're getting all sorts of liberal apologists for imperialism now saying, oh, Trump is uh, destroying the system that we set up. Yes, because we can't afford it. We need another one. Uh, but it was such a wonderful system. You know, uh, uh, respect for the law, uh, world poverty, uh, disease, relative peace, uh, international, uh, this is from Krugman and, all, and others, you know. This is all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, down the memory hole of what American domination was like, and it was really wonderful, and it is, because we have to be uh, doing this because the Chinese are so terrible, okay? Um, okay. Um, what I'm trying to get to is there's no return to the pre-Trump era. You know, the the barn door is open, the horse is at whatever you want to call it, you know. That is, the struggle with China has begun. There'll be setbacks, there'll be ups and downs. We didn't always go rushing off against the, the Russians. But what was the imperialist struggle of, for my generation, from the end of World War II uh, to the end of the 19th, for your generation, the imperialist struggle is between the United States and China. We have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn about the plans of both of them. Because, you know, there's a newly emerging socialist movement in this country, but it's very innocent. Uh, 
nobody running uh, in the GSA ever talks about that the Democratic Party is a party of imperialism, is it? I'm running in this imperialist party to end imperialism. <laughs> I haven't seen one GSA candidate, uh, you know, say anything like that. Uh, okay. Um, a movement in this country, a movement in this country that has to be built, has to be built on an anti-imperialist basis. Any left in this country that does not, does not challenge imperialism is being built on sand. The, I say that, I say that, on, we've had a left in this country. We know that the social democratic parties collapse at the end of World War I and have never turned back. Never turned, they've always supported all the wars of their ruling class and became a counter-revolutionary force. Mm -hmm. The Stalin, the communist parties became uh, followers of Moscow, no matter what it did. The orthodox Trotskyists, unfortunately, did. They just, we were the only people who raised the slogan, neither Washington nor Moscow, but for the third camp of international socialism, the camp of the world workers and oppressed nationalities. We have always fought every imperialism, any imperialist war that has ever existed. We have never been for the ruling classes of other countries against the ruling class of our country. We have always been for the people of those countries and unity between our people and the oppressed people of the world and so on. We have no enemies in China. Uh, Chinese ruling, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm talking about the... Uh, right. Our, our enemies are the ruling classes everywhere, excuse me. Okay. Uh, there's a relationship between anti-imperialism and socialism from below. That is, from the idea that you can only rely upon the working classes of the world to emancipate themselves, to take power, to end imperialism not just their own oppression, but to end imperialism. And what our generation is going to, our generation, I hope I'm part of it, what our generation is going to be confronting is the old question, socialism or barbarism. This is the opening stages only of what is going to be coming down the years and the hope of humanity is of a movement that can overthrow American imperialism and open the world to a socialist future. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.